All right, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 this evening. And I entitled the message, Looking Unto Jesus. Looking Unto Jesus. Now this chapter is about hope. And everybody is looking in one way or another for hope. But it's hope in God's word. And hope is not something that's vague. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's not positive thinking. It's not mind over matter. It's not crossing your fingers and hoping that everything's going to work out. Hope is a fundamental to the, to the Christian. It's a basic. It's powerful and it's real. And here now in, in this chapter tonight and what we're going to look at, God speaks to his children. Now, how do we know that they're his children? Well, because he chastens them. And he tells them about their wonderful future. Because he wants them to be patiently, he wants them to patiently endure the trials and the testings that they're going to go through. God is going to set up his kingdom. So in the middle of all of the, the chaos in their life, this wonderful hope is their promise for complete victory for the moment. And we keep marching on through this wilderness journey until one day all of God's promises are fulfilled. You know, they're made, when they're made known to us. If hope is going to accomplish its desired effect in our soul, in the believer's soul, it has to be firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. Keeping our mind on Christ will bring discipline into our lives. Let's begin with verses 1 through 3 as we look at the self-discipline that we need to have. Chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does easily beset us. And let us run with patience the run that is set before the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer here pictures us in a race. And the people that are running the race have entered the race. But they hadn't started running yet. This was the position of many of the Hebrew Christians, these new, new, new converts. They had come to Christ. And they were start in the starting blocks, but nobody has started to move out yet. Because when they saw the cost, when they saw how long the race was, when they saw that it was an uphill climb, when they saw the hurdles that were all set up all along the course, they were about to drop out. So the writer draws their attention to three important things in these first three verses. The first thing he draws them to is the great cloud of witnesses. Each one of these witnesses finished the race. And they were watching and they were cheering them on. They were, they were watching us and, 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 and as we stand at the, at the blocks and we press forward as we make our way down the track. There are incentive to us to win, to not stop. To not give up until we reach the finish line. To make it all the way. But it's not going to be easy. 
And it's not going to be without a struggle. The second thing that he brings our attention to regarding the race is the struggle. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does easily beset us or trouble us. In other words, he's telling him, get rid of anything in your life that would be a hindrance to this race, that would weigh you down, slow you down, keep you from finishing. Sin is our most persistent, stubborn, and deadly enemy. And Jesus foretold how difficult this race would be. And his disciples and the Apostle Paul and other Christians found that their journey is one of hardships and sacrifices. Nothing great, nothing of any value can be attained in this world without work. Today we have a generation that thinks everything should be handed to them. Free this, free that. I deserve it. I'm entitled. We're entitled and deserve nothing but hell. God has not made things pleasant by suggesting that the way to get them should be easy. But he has made them precious by suggesting that the way should be hard. He said in Matthew 7, 14, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. The word straight means narrow from obstacles all around. The word narrow means tribulation, trouble, and suffering. So you could say, Uh, uh, narrow from obstacles is the gate and tribulation, trouble, and suffering are the way. And in 2 Timothy, Paul describes the Christian, he's talking about Christian leadership, but it applies to all Christians as well. We don't have a different standard for each other. But Paul describes a Christian using several metaphors, a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a workman, a servant. All of these metaphors suggest ideas of sacrifice, hard work, service, and hardship. So where in the world do we ever get the idea that life is supposed to be easy? So it's not surprising that the highest areas of success requires diligence. It's required for building godly Christian character. Peter said, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Paul said, work out your own salvation. Work out means to do work fully to the finish. You see, sin wants to rob us of every good thing that God has planned for us. Sin brings death. Sin is very subtle and it tiptoes into our lives when and where we least expect it. And sin makes itself so attractive that we are lulled into thinking, what harm can it do? Sin quietly and persistently entangles our lives. And it makes itself so attractive Again, that we're lulled into thinking it's not going to hurt anything. We'll never be able to run the race that God has laid out for us as long as we're caught up in sin. And the only way that we can get out from under this under sin's hold is if we recognize recognize it for what it is, and we can't blame ourselves or others. We can't let pride keep us from admitting the sin that's in our lives. Sin can blind our vision. It can cloud our judgment so that we don't see it. And it doesn't always grab our attention the way that, 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 you know, it, it should. Instead, it subtly robs us of the spiritual power and victory that belongs to us. But here's the good news, church. God's grace can free us from any sin at any time, anywhere, because where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now, has sin robbed you today of your joy? 
Has it stopped you from being the best husband, the best wife, son, daughter, or friend that you could be? Is sin keeping you from growing in the Lord? Is it keeping you from being used by God? And if you're tangled up in sin, God can set you free now. And it doesn't matter how terribly entangled you might be right now in sin. Even good things. Even good things can become weights that hold us back in this race. Things like the love of our homes, our family, our work, ministry, comfort, um, uh, you know, pleasure, sports, free time. Now, these things are not bad things. Don't get me wrong. These are good things that can become weights that hold us back in the race. And Jesus warned his disciples to watch their hearts carefully so that no other relation prevails uh, over, above our love to God and take away our duty to him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37 and 38, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, we, Christ should be our most important relationship. And if it is, every other relationship below it is going to be okay. The third thing that the writer brings to our attention about the race is that once the race is started, you can't be impatient. Notice what he says in verse 1 again. Let us run with what? Patience. And I think that's something I know for myself that, that sorely lacks in the church today. The emphasis here now is on the word patience, but it's connected to the phrase looking unto Jesus. They go together. We are to run the race, but the plan for winning is looking unto Jesus. He is our incentive to win. The word looking means to look away from everything else, looking at that which fills the heart. Does Jesus fill your heart? Now we're going to run. But it's not because of the prize at the end of the race. And it's not because many other saints have run the race before us and have been crowned. But because the vision of Jesus Christ thrills our soul. Looking unto Jesus has been the absolute example of the patience that the writer is talking about. And the Greek word translated patience has a fuller meaning of patient endurance which connects with it the subject in the, in the chapters before. The writer spoke about patience many times before getting to chapter 12. He said in chapter 10, for you have, in, you have need of patient endurance. In chapter 11, it's all about the patient enduring of faith. Then starting in chapter 12 here, it says, let us run with patient endurance. And then in, in, in verse 2, it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And then verse 3, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners. And then in verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. So you see, this section of the letter is all about patient enduring. And our passage here urges us to run the race looking unto Jesus. It's telling us that this is the best remedy for discouragement. Looking unto Jesus should be our fixed mindset. Especially in the days that we're living in. And I believe with all my heart that we are living in the end times. With seduction and sin that abounds like never before. 
nuclear war at our door. We're seeing what's going on with North Korea. Politics and politicians at their worst. Integrity and immorality at its lowest. Life has never been so fast, so confusing, or complicated. And I believe also we're in the century of apostasy of Christianity from the evangelistic faith, evangelical faith, with the liberal teaching, the liberal preaching, the moral breakdown, the evil being called good and good evil, teenage pregnancies, you know, unwed pregnancies, drugs, alcohol, and violence higher than ever before, increased divorce. I could keep going, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And with all of this and more, it seems like overwhelming odds against evangelical Christianity. And with the temptations to compromise and with all of the discouragement to those who want to stand up and live for Jesus Christ, it's easy to turn our our eyes away from Jesus to all of the discouraging things around us and become a victim instead of the victor. But again, looking unto Jesus are the words for tonight. That should be our, our, our rally cry. The full source of the Greek word of, 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 again, looking unto Jesus is looking off to Jesus. And doing that by making an intelligent determination that we must look off to Jesus. Who is the perfect example of, a pa- of patient endurance who is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And our Lord foretold us in Matthew 24, 12, and 13, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall grow cold, but he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. He that shall endure to the end shall be saved. Now remember, enduring isn't the means of salvation. It's evidence that you are saved. And the best secret of enduring is looking unto Jesus. Why? Because this race that we are being called to run, it's not a 50-yard dash. It's not a short sprint. It's an endurance race. And the course that God has set for us, notice that it says the race that he has set before us. The word set means appointed or destined. It's long. It's winding. It has a lot of hurdles to discourage and and disappoint. But God has set that course for us. Remember, we weren't forced to get into this race. We weren't tricked into getting into this race. It's set before us. But even before we start, we're given some idea about what lies ahead. And the words let us emphasizes that it's a voluntary race. Now, God urges everyone to enter. But he never forces or intimidates anybody to get in. And remember, the crown does not go to the good starters. The crown is for those who finish. In this section, we are filled with thoughts about him. It says says here that he's the author and the finisher, which means perfecter of our faith. Jesus has already been down this course. The word says he goes before and he goes behind. He knows how it should be run. The word author means a chief leader, which suggests that he's going to stay a step or two ahead of us all the way so that he can show us where the obstacles are and guide us each step. Psalm 37, 23 says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. We're also filled with thoughts of his position. 
In verse 3, it says, who for the joy that was set before him, notice Christ's course was set before him, which was the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame. No runner has ever had such a terrible experience as Jesus Christ did. And yet, he kept looking ahead. He kept pressing on with his heart, fixed on the coming joy after the cross. In verse 2, we're filled with thoughts of Christ's position. He sat down at the right hand, uh, right hand of the throne of God. He is sitting there crowned in heaven, heaven smiling down on those who for his name's sake would enter the race and follow his lead. So you see, the writer here is, marking his, is making his case for the Hebrews to move forward in their faith for Christ. And to not let this, this race, the cost, the length, and the endurance, not let it you know, stop them from joining the race and moving forward in Christ. And then he gives the biggest reason for getting into the race. It's not just the wonderful picture that we have of Christ. But he says in verse 3, we're to consider him. Look at verse 3 again. For consider him, notice, who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Well, so he's saying here that, that, that look at what all that Jesus went through. Look at what he endured. Look what our Lord endured. Think about all the hostility that he endured from sinful people. And when you consider him and all that he went through, and yet he completed his mission, which was the cross, then you won't become weary and give up. Think about what Jesus went through and he became victorious. That means we can be victorious. Consider everything and everyone that was against Jesus. And yet he won. The things against us are lightweight compared to the opposition that Jesus faced. We can win this race too. So we're to consider him. We're to consider him so we won't get weary and give up. We're to consider him, that, and that will keep us from, from, from relaxing and from discouragement. He's the stimulant to stir us up. And we're, when, when we're tempted to give in, we need to remember he's watching and he's cheering me on. And what a difference that makes when you're in a serious contest and, and, and there's a loved one that's watching to see us win. Remember as a child, if you played sports and your mom and dad said they're going to come to your game. I mean, I remember playing Little League. I was always looking in the stands for my parents to cheer me on. You know, and, and that stimulated, that stirred me up. Well, Jesus is, 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 is watching and he's smiling down and he's cheering us on. The next thing that we learn is the need now for chasing as a spiritual discipline in life. Because you see, if we're going to win the race and we're going to fulfill the hope that we have in Christ, God has to put pressure on us in certain areas of our lives to help us get those weights off and the sins that, that, that trouble us. Look at verse 4 now. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. The writer is saying, none of you have had to endure what Jesus did. None of you have given your life for the gospel. Verse 5 and 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to children. My son, despise not thou the chasing of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, 
He says here, as a matter of fact, you have forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children. And he's quoting from Psalm 311, uh, Proverbs uh, 3, 11 and 12. This was something that his readers knew, but they forgot. This is one of the sad things that happens when God's word becomes routine to us. Verses 5 and 6 are an exhortation that literally means encouragement. And he says, you guys have forgotten this exhortation. They had forgotten it because they forgot the word of God. They lost their encouragement. They were ready to give up. Because again, they had forgotten the word of God. And some people become so overwhelmed by their problems that they just give up. They lose hope. They get depressed and they get discouraged. They become spiritually paralyzed. They don't care what God is doing or why. They just give up and collapse. But you see, the cure for hopelessness is hope in God. The believer doesn't doesn't need to be discouraged. He has no need to be discouraged because of God's discipline. God disciplines us to strengthen us, not to weaken us, to encourage us, not to discourage us, to build us up, not to tear us down. But when we take God's discipline lightly or we become hopeless, then God's discipline isn't allowed to accomplish his purposes in us. And then Satan gets the victory and God's purposes is lost and our blessings are lost. Christian living doesn't just involve running and working and fighting and enduring. It also involves relationships especially our relationships to God and other believers. And the emphasis here now is on the Heavenly Father's use of discipline in the lives of His children. The word chastening means tutorage. For example, education or training by disciplinary correction. Let's look at the purposes of discipline. God uses hardships and affliction as a way to to discipline or to train His children in order to help them mature in their spiritual lives. There's a huge difference between God's discipline and his condemning punishment. As Christians, we often have to suffer suffer painful consequences for our sins. But you know, we'll never experience God's judgments for our sins because Jesus paid for our sins. And in discipline, God is not a judge. He's a father. And then when it comes to punishment, we experience some of God's discipline as a direct result of our sins. But the punishment is meant to be corrective, not judgmental. It's punishment, but not the kind of punishment that believers receive. Now, as parents, why do we discipline our children? Basically, because we love them. And what is it we want to get the result? We want to correct their behavior. It's the same with God. His purpose is to draw us deeper into the fellowship of the family of God. And sometimes God disciplines in order to keep us from sinning. Just like we put restrictions and boundaries around our children to protect them from getting hurt, God does the same thing with us. When we step out of those boundaries, we're going to pay the consequences. God also puts restrictions around his children to protect them. And what seems like a terrible inconvenience or hardship to us, it just might be God's loving hand protecting us. You might be sick. You might not be doing well in business. You might have other problems. 
And it might be God's way of keeping you from something worse. And if God's children accept, would accept God's effort, that is what he's doing to keep us from sinning more willingly and thankfully, he wouldn't have to, to use his correction, his corrective discipline as much as he does. Then in instruction, besides punishing and preventing, God disciplines us to instruct us for better service and for better living. We learn from it if we listen to what he's saying through it. First of all, discipline can help us to know God's powerful sufficiency better. But unfortunately, there's times when God can get our attention better through affliction than through blessing. Many times we have to learn the hard way. When things are going well, it has a way of making us feel satisfied. I'm doing good. Everything is fine. I'm doing okay without God. It's the problems that also often draws to God and then shows us how much we really need Him. The thing is, we need Him all the time. We need Him when things are going well as well as when things are going bad. But so many times we don't feel that we need Him until something goes wrong and we feel helpless. So when we have problems and heartaches, He might be disciplining us. He might be punishing us. and He might be keeping us from sinning or teaching us something through the circumstances. And like David, we need to ask the Lord, Lord, search my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Show me, Lord, what you're doing in my life and why. Then we can always be sure that his discipline will correct us, protect us, or instruct us. But whatever the reason, it's for our good. And we should thank him. And the first thing that we should think of when we're suffering is God's love. Sounds like a contradiction, contradiction, but it's God's love. Because we're God's children. God loves his children. And because of God's nature, he can only and will only do us good. So whatever God dishes out, even discipline, it's from God's love. Verse 7 and 8. The writer goes on to say, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof you are all partakers, then you are not sons. You are illegitimate children. God teaches us when he disciplines us. The next thing that discipline proves is that we're his children. God teaches us things when he disciplines us. All men are subject to God's punishment, but only his children are subject to his discipline. Job 5, 17 says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects, therefore do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. The very fact that God chastens us proves that we're his sons. Now in verse 8, those are very strong words. In the old King James, But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. That's pretty strong language. God doesn't own those that he doesn't chastise, that he doesn't, they don't have parents. Now, normally as parents, we don't go around disciplining other people's kids. They're not ours. It's the same with God. They're not his children. He doesn't discipline them. 
He disciplines those whom he loves, those who are his children. Look at verses uh, 9 and 10. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence or respect. Shall we much, much rather be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Here now, the writer uses an example of our earthly father. Since we have to submit to human chastening, you know, our fathers, and we've learned to respect our fathers, how much more must we yield to our heavenly father that we might be partakers of his holiness? Verses 11 through 13. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyful, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby or trained by it. Now, chasing isn't fun. But afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are trained by it. The important thing to see is God's loving hand in the chastening and to go along so that the intended result will be taken the right way. God's love. He's not, you know, mad at me because I mess up. He, he's not uh, uh, taking his, his anger out on me. He loves me. He's training me through this, this, this chastening. That's, how, that, that's the, the way we are to accept it and understand it. So here's the challenge. Knowing this, knowing this, he's been telling these, these Hebrew Christians, he says, now you guys knowing this, lift up now those hands which are hanging down in the feeble knees. You who are discouraged, knowing this, that what I've just told you now, lift up those hanging hands. Strengthen those weakened knees. Let's get into the race. Let's run that race now. The words to lift up means to set things right, to restore something that's ruined, like putting a crumbling stone wall back together and setting that, that, setting that, that thing right. That's what chasing is intended to do in our lives. It will make us strong. It will set things right in our life. We're also challenged in verse 13 to make straight paths for our feet so that, again, those who are weak and lame won't fail to become strong. The condition in the believer's life that calls for chastening often involves his relationship with other people. They've stumbled. And this is a serious problem. The problem might not just be some crookedness in his life but also some moodiness in his life. And that's why the instruction isn't just to make straight paths, but also to follow peace, as we'll see in verse 14. Chastening leads to holy living, and holy living involves living in harmony with our fellow man. Now let's look at verses 14 and 15. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. The writer tells us now that we need to live a holy life. To pursue, to pursue peace means that we'll be courteous, we'll be considerate, and we'll, be, and we'll refuse to quarrel with our fellow man. There's a lot of Christians who who behave in a rude and disrespectful way to Christians and non-Christians alike. And to pursue peace with all means means to run quickly to make this happen. The The first high priority goal is peace with all men. 
Now you might say, well, I've tried to make peace with certain people, but they don't want to make peace with me. What can I do? You've done what you're supposed to do. They will have to answer to God. Paul said in Romans 12, 8, if it is possible, notice, as much as depends on you, you live peaceably with all men. 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul said, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. You see, if we're going to lift up hanging hands and weak knees, and if we're going to straighten out our way of life, we better start with this dislocated relationships in our life. And holiness, he said, without which no one will see the Lord. Getting right with men is part of becoming holy. Jesus was always courteous. He was always gracious, thoughtful of other people and tactful, even though he was firm and uncompromising in his attitude towards sin. True holiness in life involves more than living in harmony with other people. It will involve living in holiness before God. This is why the writer says that without this holiness, no man, no man will see the Lord. So pursuing holiness, that is sanctification, is a proof that we are sanctified. Verse 15. Again, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Looking diligently means looking out for each other. It means we're to watch out for each other. We're to help each other grow in holiness. We're to help each other grow in Christ's likeness. And many times, unfortunately, we stumble our brother and our sister many times. We're also to look out for those in and around us, especially in the church. Those who might not be believers. Not to judge them, but to be sensitive toward them. To look for chances to tell them about Jesus so that no one falls short of the grace of God. Now, this is the writer's fifth warning in Hebrews. In verses 14 through 29, against rejecting God's Son. Now, there are many in the church who are like Israel. They left Egypt, which is a type of the world, but they fell short of the promised land. For a while, they made a a heartfelt profession. And yet, they came short of the grace of God. Receive the grace of God at the start in vain, never truly becoming possessed of it and by it. It was like the Galatians. Oh, they were all zealous for religion and and forms of religion, which Paul said in Galatians 5.4, you have fallen from grace. The word you have fallen means to lose or drop away. But the important thing to understand here, what Paul said, that you, have, you, you can't fall from a place you're not in. They fell out of grace. And again, the important thing to understand here is that, that this loss was due to the fact that they abandoned God's grace and not because God had taken it away. In closing, the writer mentions three things that cause and is a sign of this failing to receive the grace of God. In the second part of verse 15, he says a root of bitterness. A root of bitterness can cause those to fail uh, for, for uh, fail receiving the grace of God. 
This root of bitterness may refer to a person who by wrong behavior or doctrine causes trouble and leads others astray. Being led astray by carnal reasoning more than by the word of God or his spirit. Giving in to sin. Any of these things may be the root of bitterness. And a person in the root of bitterness has a corruptive influence. They are a, a serious infection to the body. He stays in or near the fellowship of the church and he spreads his wickedness, his doubt, and his general corruption. The second thing that keeps a person from, again, failing from receiving the grace of God in verse 16 is is being a fornicator. Look at verse 16 and 17. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, for who one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Second thing is a fornicator. Now, morally, he was a fornicator. Not spirit, I'm sorry, he, was, he wasn't a, 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 a physically a, a fornicator, but spiritually. There's the danger of turning from God to the things of the flesh. And it could be most anything of the flesh. Then a profane person. Esau was a profane person. This was the third thing. The word profane means a common person, who, one who lives for the word, world and not God. A profane person is a common person who lives for the world and not God. Esau despised his birthright and he sold it to Jacob. And Esau missed the blessing because he gave it to Jacob. Now, some people think that, that Esau was a, uh, was a, or they think that an, uh, a profane person is blasphemous. They think a profane person is filthy, but Esau was a, was a pretty good guy. He, he, you know, he was a good hunter. He was a nice guy. He was a man who loved his father. He would have made a good neighbor. But the thing was, he wasn't interested in the things of God. And later on, Esau tried to get the, the, the blessing back. He tried to get Isaac to change his mind, but it was too late. And here's the thing, even Esau's tears couldn't help him get it back. He wanted God's blessings, but he didn't want God. And I think of those people on that day, they stand before God. They heard the word of God. They were offered the blessings of God, the salvation of God, the love of God. And they didn't want it. And they stood before God as Esau stood before Isaac and cried and cried, I want the blessing, but it will be too late. Those alligator tears before God will be meaningless. Because you had your opportunity while you were here. But you didn't want it. And as Esau cried, it was too late to get the blessing back. He, didn't, he, wanted, the, he wanted the blessings, but he didn't want God. Esau was the loser forever because he had valued spiritual realities so lightly. 
He threw them away for a quick moment of physical comfort. The principle applies to us today. The believer who throws away the wonderful opportunities in order to indulge in some fleshly desire will pay for it in the end. So the, the writer presses his point again. God has a strict command. Believers must follow after holiness. They must not draw back from Christ. Because if they do, and they settle for something less, and they trade spiritual things for earthly things like Esau did, they will definitely be sorry. And Esau is a warning to us not to live for lesser things. So the sins that will cause us to fail to receive the grace of God are the root of bitterness against others, sexual as well as immoral, uh, Im- sexual as well as a spiritual immorality, and living for the world in the flesh. This is why we must always be looking unto Jesus. Like that horse with blinders. I mean, just looking straight on. There's Jesus at the finish line. And I don't take my eyes off of him until I get there. Because there are so many things in this world to distract us. But we need to run the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus to keep us from getting discouraged and so that we can become the victors, the winners in this race. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful grace, your enduring mercy. Father, for your favor towards us. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done for us, God. Father, we can never thank you enough for offering up your son. And Jesus, we can never thank you enough for coming in obedience to your father. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would enlighten us, that he would open our eyes to the gospel, to what Christ did for us. And maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But we pray that God has spoken to you tonight. And the Holy Spirit has made an impression upon your heart. That you need Jesus. He's your greatest need. It's not money. It's not a job. It's not friends. It's Christ. He's our all in all. He's our sufficiency. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's Christ first.